What is up, good citizens of Crypt Nation? I hope you are having a great morning, noon, and or night wherever you are in the world. You're in the right place, because I'm joined by my buddy, my compadre, my best friend, Pizza Mind. What's up, Crypt Nation? <laughs> I'm over here. I'm a little disgruntled today. Uh, Bitcoin's been down. People aren't sure if it's ever going to come back up. Have, have we ever heard of that before? Hmm. Sounds like a familiar story. Really? Uh, yeah. I oh. think we're in the disbelief phase of the market right now, uh, where, you know, prices are crashing. Uh, we're in what I like to call or what we like to call chop solidation. You know, you seem like you're getting shaken out mm. every which way you're getting your stops run on the north side you're getting your stops run on the south side it just seems like there's no winning well as a member of crypto twitter i only have the memory of a goldfish so <laughs> if you say it's only a phase i'll trust you do you have I anyone who can corroborate that story you know we might have one of the smartest economic minds in crypto here today joining us oh. um yeah believe it or not one of the smartest economic minds one of the smartest technical minds um this is patrick Gurell, a good friend of ours here at crypto 101 and the CEO and co-founder of First.com. Patrick is in person here in studio. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's excellent <laughs> to be here. I'm really just excited. I, I mean, I've known you for a long time. It's good to see how far you've come, and this is just a great opportunity. Thank you very much for having me on the show. You're so welcome, man. I mean, we just... Uh, Patrick's here in the studio and we've just been talking for about 30 minutes and we're like, shit, we haven't even clicked record yet. So stop what you're doing and repeat everything. So I'm not even going to ask you your questions because you're basically just the same stuff. Like, tell us about like your time at Speaker first. Speaker was like a social media platform that he, you got to tell us about that and how that kind of like blockchains and social networks and all the stuff that you were just talking about. So it was just amazing stuff. Yeah. So again, um, <clears throat> I didn't come from finance. I actually kind of stumbled across crypto because I put like, I want to say less than a hundred bucks into a uh, Coinbase account and bought some Bitcoin early on watching Max Kaiser on TV. I mean, I came from the mortgage industry originally and everything melted down. So you know, I fell into watching, you know, kind of the doom and gloom of the market, trying to figure out what the next big thing was going to be. So I spent, you know, less than a hundred bucks, bought a uh, Bitcoin on Coinbase and forgot about it. And in the meantime, um, in 2014, I went to work as the VP of engineering at a company called Speaker. And Speaker was basically like the Cambridge Analytica of influence, right? We were the largest uh, social media influence marketplace in the world. And we managed about 250,000 of the most uh, influential accounts for people from Ariana Grande to Kim Kardashian to all the famous musicians. Um, and, you know, like Katy Perry was a client. Uh, we had accounts with Microsoft, Google, all the large, um, I want to say, movie studios in Hollywood because we were basically right out of Hollywood Boulevard yeah. on Hollywood and Vine. So, um, you know, one of the things that we used to do uh, early on was to graph the audiences of influential people because uh, you could actually tell how far a viral post would go based on how many people responded to an influencer, right? So whether it was Jake Paul or if it was somebody who uh, had a large audience, like um, the people who were running the Honest Company, mm -hmm. um, you know, they had used a lot of influence in order to, uh, you know, use word of mouth marketing to to display a message and broadcast the message. And so, um, understanding the audiences of these influencers was really the vantage point that we had that we could predict analysis based on how influential a person was, how well they would respond to a brand. So, uh, you know, we kind of looked, when we fell into cryptocurrencies, it was because we started to notice that the signaling from social media was dictating that uh, it was becoming a viral social event. It wasn't necessarily a market-driven event. It was more about people talking. One of the things that we learned really early on 
was that people share their wins, they don't share their losses. Oh yeah, absolutely. Nobody nobody likes talking about, oh, remember that one time I got wiped out? That was awesome. Let's yeah. relive that memory. So, great. <laughs> so uh, what we noticed is that more and more influential people were starting to talk about the money that they were making in crypto, oh, Bitcoin sure. and Ethereum. And you were scraping this from different social networks. Oh, everywhere. So we had a full data feed from Twitter, uh, Facebook, we were managing 100 million posts a day. Wow. Um, and so it, and we also were early on Vine. We started doing Snapchat analytics. We did a lot of Instagram analytics. So, and we had access to these people's profiles. So uh, we're able to see how well the audience was responding to certain things, right? Um, one of the, the really early on people was, uh, you know, McAfee watching everything that he was saying, right? Because he had a huge audience, right? I um, mean, he had blown up just recently in the, the previous couple of years. So uh, there's a, a, a signal that we look for in influence called the ADSR envelope. It actually comes from audio synthesis. I think it was like one of Skrillex uh, audio engineers or somebody really famous brought an audio engineer into our office one day and was showing us you know, what we were looking at as far as what was driving influence was called the ADSR envelope. It's a way to depict a wave pattern in audio synthesis. So we kind of just stuck with it. Wow. And so what we noticed is that the price of Bitcoin started doing the same thing. It had this parabolic attack curve. That's what the A from ADSR stands for, right? Attack. Uh, yeah, attack, decay, sustain, release. And so um, when we started seeing this, uh, I logged back into Coinbase and was looking this is fast forwarding five years yeah, from so after you didn't even remember you bought your first yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I couldn't. It was like right when Coinbase first started offering traditional accounts for people to go on and buy with uh, fiat, right? Mm. So then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, uh, I logged into Coinbase while I was working at Speaker and I said, oh, interesting, the price of Bitcoin is like 860 bucks. But I didn't realize it was my one Bitcoin I bought was in there. Yeah. So uh, I, I started trading on it. As soon as I realized I had 860 bucks in crypto, um, you know, I realized that I should really just start paying more attention to this. So uh, what I started doing was moving my cash over just the less than a thousand dollars over to Poloniex and started learning how to trade this stuff. And so Poloniex was the, the first exchange that I actually traded on. And um, I did all right. I don't want to say I was doing anything excellent, but it was one of the things that I, I noticed was that Ethereum uh, kept coming up over and over and over again on social media and that they had developed a rather large following um, on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, pretty quick and pretty early on, they had some very influential people that were starting to communicate the message about what this platform would be able to do. It wasn't like traditional, it wasn't like Litecoin or uh, Doge, which was out there, right? People were actually starting to build the decentralized version of what money would be. So um, I started looking at the signaling that we got from social media, realizing that these are reflexive markets, that people were going to look at what happened in the past to try to predict where the value was going to move in the future. And I started trading in Ethereum and I made a lot of money on Ethereum. I mean, I, I think I made initially just from when 50, you know, Ethereum went to $15 to $75 in a year, um, did really, really well. And so, uh, you know, kind of reverting back to what I learned back at Speaker was these are social networks. I realized that when I was moving value around on Ethereum, for example, um, I was leaving a trail of every wallet that I touched. And those wallets can be identified as exchanges or a smart contract. So I put a little bit money, uh, a little bit of money in the Dow. I had obviously worked with uh, almost all the exchanges by that point. So you could follow my trail of investment history from uh, you know leaving Coinbase to going to Poloniex, from Poloniex to Kraken, from Kraken to hit BTC, <laughs> and then to Binance, and then just all over the place, right? Because each wallet, right? You know, as you know, the good citizens here at Crypt Nation know, you know, you have a wallet, and it could say zero x one two three, but 
you know, EtherScan has actually indexed that account as that's Binance's hot wallet, for instance. Um, so they know, and then you could, uh, so, and like you also know, hey, this is my wallet, uh, and then that's your wallet. And you could start to identify and relate certain people to certain wallets. Even better yet was uh, people were asking me to, uh, you know, participate in ICOs or show them how to participate in ICOs. So uh, what was really interesting was I would ask them, uh, you know, send me your wallet address and I'll be able to, you know, help you try to figure out, you know, what's going on with your account, how to move money around. Because a lot of people didn't understand how to use crypto at the time, right? And what I started doing was following everything they did too. Mm. So, um, you know, using Etherscan was all right if you're just doing some very fundamental analysis and you're trying to look at, you know, which wallets belong to exchanges, so on and so forth. But we started getting really detailed and we started mapping every single wallet on Ethereum, which is actually a really big undertaking. There's hundreds hundreds and hundreds of millions of transactions, tens of millions of wallets that you have to index. In fact, there's actually billions of transactions now. But when we started doing this, um, it was really early on. So uh, we started personifying wallet activity, right? We started saying, okay, well, uh, this wallet has participated in many ICOs, so it's acting like a venture capital wallet. Or this wallet has moved to a bunch of different exchanges, so it's acting like a trading wallet, right? Um, And then we could see all the other tokens that these guys were investing in. And then once we understood that we could see everything that they were investing in, uh, we could try to understand how to price their performance. So one of the large undertakings that we did early on was historically pricing all the transactions that we possibly could um, as a vertical weight, you know, as as a volume weighted average, right? And then uh, once you understand what price people were getting into positions at, you just follow them to see when they would sell. And once you understand that, uh, all of a sudden you can gauge their performance. And once you can gauge their performance, you can rank them. Mm. And once you have a ranking, you just follow the top performers. <laughs> I love it. Right? Wow. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, really, really, really interesting. Uh, one of the things that we started doing, too, was just monitoring smart contracts being created on Ethereum. Right? And we knew that if a specific wallet had participated in a large ICO and done well on different ICOs at the time, this is 2017 now, right? Or 2016, 2017, um, that they probably had some kind of information that we didn't have, right? That they were probably talking to people or part of a group or a community that was able to, you know, uh, get information about products or projects that were going to be big deal, right? So one of them, that's probably right around the time that we met, uh, we noticed that one of the most substantive traders and one of the most uh, uh, valuable wallets on Ethereum started investing really early on on EOS, right? Mm-hmm. When EOS was launching their ICO. And I think when EOS started their ICO, the, the token started out at like $2.50 in a Dutch style auction that ended every 23 hours. And we could see how much these guys were buying. Well, they were buying very little in the beginning, and then the price kept falling and falling and falling. And then it kind of hit this plateau where ELS tokens were selling for, I think, close to 48 and a half cents yeah. is the lowest position I got into. So I bought like $15,000 worth of EOS tokens and sold at $22.50 probably 60, 65 days later. So that's about a 40 or 50x? Yeah, about 45x. Wow. Whoa. In just two months. Um, and that that's probably, that could have been you, Crip Nation. Could have been you. 2017 yeah. was a good year. <laughs> oh, it definitely was. And we were able to do this over and over and over again, right? Um, what we understood was that uh, there are specific players that exist on chain that just have better information than everybody. And these aren't... Asymmetric information is yes. what they call it, right? Yes, definitely. Okay. So um, 
you know, what we understood early on is we didn't want to think that we were the best traders out there. We were really humbled by the fact that we didn't really understand too much about the actual trading community itself. But what we did was we kind of approached this from an influence standpoint, knowing that if you could see specific wallets get into a position that had displayed this type of performance in the past, that they probably talk to people who talk to people who talk to people and share a message or share information. And that's what really drives the value of these tokens early on, right? right. So Because there's nothing really fundamentally changing about these tokens over time. It's just a perception of the value. It's exactly what it is, right? So uh, price is dictated by perception, right? And the perception comes from some kind of fundamental analysis, mm -hmm. right? And typically what we realize, especially in uneducated markets, because crypto in 2016 and 2017, I would consider a very uneducated market. Still highly uneducated. Yes, yes. That's, that's what we're all working to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Educate the market. Um, that these people would always buy based on information that they heard, right? And everything is always, uh, oh, well, I heard from this guy or I saw something or Binance is about to do something something big. So we can assume that whatever happened in the past will happen in the future. So that's kind of what reflexivity is. It's timelessly valid generalizations that could be used reversibly to explain and predict economic phenomena, right? It was coined by George Soros in the Alchemy of Finance back in, I think it was 1987. Whoa. And so uh, what it means is these are self-fulfilling prophecies. So um, I always use this one statement in a sense to really describe uh, the way that these markets work, and we can talk about how uh, this affected the bigger traders because we also moved our office to Chicago, right? But um, think about it this way, right? A market maker's on his way to work and he's driving and he, you know, runs over a cat and he's like, oh crap, you know, today's just going to be a horrible day. I feel terrible. I feel like something bad's going to happen. So he pulls all of his positions out of the marketplace, right? And without realizing that everybody else is watching this guy, mm. um, everybody else starts to do the same thing. And what would normally be a speed bump and a little bit of a dip in the marketplace caused by one person now becomes like a canyon of activity, right? Like it just destroys the market, right? Um, and the worst part about that is, is the guy who caused it all wakes up in the morning and says, holy shit, I was right, right? Mm. Without realizing that he was the one that caused it. So yeah. uh, we just witnessed the same thing happen with SNX token, right? So synthetics, uh, we just saw... Uh, $200,000 worth of synthetics tokens was transferred to Andreessen Horowitz wallet. Everybody knows it's Andreessen Horowitz wallet, right? And then all of a sudden, a broadcast goes out on Twitter. And then the very next day, the price of SNX jumps up like 34 or 45% because yeah. of the perception that something is about to happen. We saw the same thing happen with Chainlink. When Chainlink talked about their partnership with Google, all of a sudden it doubled in value, right? So it's not even the fact that these, these types of assets really provide fundamental value. It's the perception that they provide fundamental value that's been driving the, the speculative part in the, the price. Uh, I'd say that's where the price really diverges from a standard mean, right? Mm. So um, and with that being said, this all comes down to influence, right? It's how people perceive what's going to happen. And uh, that's why reflexivity, I think, is really just the best way to describe any kind of shift in price that we see. So... Um, you know, what we've been able to do now is uh, we went to Chicago to work with some of our investors, which includes uh, Capital Markets Trading. Um, CMT. Yeah, CMT. Yeah, they're awesome. Uh, they're a great fund. Some of our other investors are in Acuna Capital as well as BitMEX. Um, BitMEX. Everybody loves BitMEX. Yeah, everybody loves BitMEX. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pizza Mine hates BitMEX. <laughs> uh, so they're, I mean, they've been very supportive, obviously, because they realize how valuable this type of information will become, yeah. right? And this is part of what a decentralized uh, community really needs to understand. I mean, basically what we're trying to create is like the Vanguard fund of cryptocurrency. Oh, it's right? beautiful. Yeah. It's so, a perfect way to put it. 
Um, but, you know, what we realized really early on is that everybody was trying to use standard market metrics from a traditional market to try to understand crypto, and it just doesn't work. Mm. Uh, these markets are so small that single players can really drive the narrative and drive the value of specific assets, right? Um, you know, you're talking about a market that's less than a trillion dollars still. Yeah. And some of these players alone are managing, you know, billions and billions of dollars, which could easily drive the market. So, um, you know, we try to we strive to learn more about the behavior of activity on chain. Um, in doing so, it's led us to basically, you know, decode and price the entire Bitcoin network, um, as well as almost every asset we could possibly get on Ethereum. So, you know, thousands of assets that we've historically priced that allow us to look at the flow of value between exchanges, between wallets, between smart contracts, between different products. And be able to find what you guys think is a fair price for these assets and project where they're going? Not even so much. So uh, it, better yet, uh, what we did was we identified and personified tens of millions of wallets on Ethereum, for example, right? And what that means is uh, if we know you, for example, uh, are transferring value or ETH to Dharma or Compound or any of the lending products that exist, then we would consider you a lender, right? Um, if we see you participating in ICOs and you're participating very early on, um, we would consider you a, uh, a venture capitalist. And depending on how many different ICOs you participate in, then we understand how successful you are at you know, trying to, uh, uh, I would say, guess the value of what these ICOs will be. We can see how long you hold your tokens. We can see which ones look like team members, which ones look like founders. Uh, wallets, because one of the best ways to gauge where an ICO is going is follow the founder's wallets. Yeah, right. If they're dumping, if yeah. they're dumping, yeah, then it's not a good sign, right? Um, so, so have you? So at first, have you guys productized all this? Yes. Okay. So, could an average consumer like me get actionable signals? Or are you guys only working with trading desks on, uh, you know, Bitmex and trading desks on CMT and the big boys? No. So uh, we will be launching a retail product before the end of the year. And what you'll be able to do is subscribe to our, our indexes, basically. An index acts as, base, uh, you know, um, what we'll do is we'll personify the top traders for specific types of activity, whether it's leverage, lending, um, it, buy, hold, whatever it is, right? There's quite a few different personas that we follow. And then we'll combine them into different indexes. It may be uh, what we call our uh, L20, L50, L100, which are basically the top leverage and lending traders. And, and uh, real quick, so, so for, for if you guys haven't heard of the term index, think of an index as like the NASDAQ, you know, the QQQ, where it compromises like uh, different S&P 500, S &P like 500. Traders, right? Okay, got it. Um, it's not necessarily top products or top tokens, but what we're looking at is the top performers, right? So um, what we're able to do is measure their performance. We calculate sharp ratios on every single wallet. What's a sharp ratio? A sharp ratio tells you how well they perform in volatile markets. So uh, how well they're able to uh, maintain value over a really volatile market. Um, the higher your sharp ratio, like a, a sharp ratio of like a three is considered absolutely excellent, right? Um, and most of the wallets that we follow fall between a, a like a 1.9 to like a 2.9, maybe a three at best, right? Um, which means they're performing excellently, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what we'll do is we'll find the top sharp ratios for these wallets, or the, the wallets that have the highest sharp ratios and or the wallets that we think have been the most profitable because a sharp ratio doesn't necessarily return on profits, right? Or fall back to how profitable they are. But, um, you know, we'll find the wallets that have basically made the most money. 
Um, and as long as we know that they're still active and we can follow everything that they're doing, then we'll combine them into an index based on that type of activity. And then that index you can follow as a composed index of top performers. Wow. So what you're looking at now is it's, it's a better signal than just following a single trader because a single trader, if they ever figure out that they're being followed, can manipulate the market, right? That's exactly right. what I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, if I knew I was being followed, I'm like, hey, there's this product that uh, you know people are using to follow me. I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing or maybe do a counter thing so I could counter trade all these other people. But if you index it, then you take away that risk. Yeah. So you know our, our average index will follow a thousand different traders, for example. And then we'll weight them differently based on, you know, supposed activity that we think they're doing, right? Um, and also, it really depends on if it's a buy-hold signal, if it's a leveraging signal, if it's an active trader using DYDX. It doesn't really, uh, you know, each one works a little bit differently. But, um, you know, the, the average index doesn't generate that many trades, for example. I think um, our average L20, or sorry, L100 is the most active and it's, I think, generated 2,230 trades this year so far. But I think right now uh, for Bitcoin, um, the L20 is at like 95% up, which isn't better than a buy hold strategy, but this is something that puts profits on the table, right? Um, rather than just trying to hold and speculate that Bitcoin's gonna go to $20,000 again. You take profits along the yeah, way. Yeah, you're taking profits the whole time. So, um, and then, you know, we have some of our Ethereum indexes because Ethereum has offered so many different products. And if you use leverage, you can really compound your profits on these things. Um, the the L, L100, I think, or sorry, our uh, directional leverage index is somewhere around like 130% this year uh, with fees included. So, these things perform very, very well. And when you mention fees, is it just a standard two and twenty, or what's this fee structure? Uh, so we're not a fund, right? We're generating these actually because, uh, and I'll get to why we think these will be a great retail product here in a little bit. But um, no, we just assume that the average person's paying between 0.025 fees to 0.075 fees on an exchange, right? Gotcha. So every single trade, based on how much value you're putting on and off the table, uh, we can calculate you know, roughly what your fee structure would be, right? And obviously that changes too. If you're a big fund, a lot of these guys actually get paid to trade, right? So if they're market making, then their fees are actually negative. Mm -hmm. um, so it really just kind of depends. But uh, again, this kind of all falls back to a narrative, right? of um, why would we even, why wouldn't we just be a fund and trade on this stuff versus why we wanna turn this into a retail product and share this with everybody. And it's really because of the reflexive nature of how these things work. Now, one of the things I don't really mention is we also have an arbitrage index where we've mapped every single arbitrage wallet that exists between exchanges. So we know every single wallet that has ever had, you know, five exchanges on one side that deposits into a single exchange on the other side, right? So it'll receive funds from five different exchanges and deposit directly in the Gemini, for example. And what you're seeing is people are moving value from five, five exchanges to Gemini to take advantage of a price, a price difference. And we can see this with every single token on Ethereum, for example, and see, you know, if we see a recursive pattern or, uh, sorry, uh, a pattern of the same trades going on at specific price points or specific times of the day, then we're able to identify what they're arbing. And then we can see value moving the opposite direction back to other exchanges. So typically what you'll see is like, you know, uh, $50,000 of ETH going a single trade from, you know, four different exchanges into Poloniex, for example. And then all of a sudden, you know, 
an hour later, you'll see $50,000 of stable coins move back to those exchanges through the same wallets, right? And so what we realize is that they're, you know, rebalancing their portfolios, they're moving value out of a successful ARB. And if you see these same wallets behaving in the same activity over and over and over again, you can identify the arbitrage that they're making just by looking at the books or just looking at what the market's doing, right? So uh, we've actually identified some of our investors' wallets who are doing ARBs. And, you know, obviously we don't want to share that information with everybody because arbitrage is eaten away. It's a part of market efficiency, right? So uh, as the market uh, tends to become more efficient in these patterns, you can't really do anything like high frequency trading on chain. It just doesn't exist, right? Because the confirmations are too slow. Yeah, or... just way too slow. I mean, these guys are used to working in picoseconds, right? Or, you know, milliseconds. Like less than nanoseconds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these, these are like ridiculously short windows of opportunity, right? Uh, that's what high frequency trading is, right? Now they're shooting x-rays through the earth to you know, get information from one place to another. What? Yeah, <laughs> That's so, insane. Um, but, you know, they're, they're building cell towers and they're just trying to transmit information, not even through a hardwire anymore, right? So, um, you know, if you're doing on-chain strategies, uh, you know, Bitcoin's 10 minutes per transfer. Sometimes, depending on variance, could be an hour, right? Ethereum is anywhere from 10 to a minute, 10 seconds to a minute sometimes, right? Uh, EOS is always maybe a couple seconds per block, right? But uh, every single one of these chains has a mempool or a transaction pool that transactions sit in. And that's where like a we... backlog. Yeah, it's basically just a backlog of transactions that need to be applied to a block, right? And verified. So what we did really early on was Jonas, our co-founder, built his own Ethereum nodes that would listen to the mempool and rebroadcast transactions. So uh, what we're able to do now effectively is try to decide and try to figure out if transactions will render to a block anytime soon. Because if we see a large transaction worth $200 million moving from one wallet in the direction towards an exchange, then we can assume that they're about to liquidate on that exchange, right? So anytime we would see value move into an exchange, we always considered it like a sell signal. Anytime we saw it moving out of an exchange, we always considered it like a, a post buy, right? But on the contrary, what if it's a $200 million worth of stable coins going into an exchange? Then it would be the inverse. Uh, it depends, right? So you never really know what they're about to do, but what you can do is hedge your bets that something is about to happen. Okay. Right? So um, again, I don't think that's a very effective strategy unless you're really playing on the swing. Um, and you're going to swing trade on this stuff and try to realize that, you know, you might be able to make a call beforehand. But one really good instance where this happened was back in June of 2018 um, when EOS liquidated $200 million worth of Ethereum right before they launched their own chain. They liquidated $200 million worth of ETH on Bitfinex in a single day. And I think they bought down the books like three times in a single day. Jeez. And I think if I remember correctly, ETH was already on a downward spiral, but it went from, I want to say 600 bucks to 300 bucks yep, in I a single that. day. And um, what was crazy about it was we could see this happen from you know two wallets out. So there was the primary holding wallet that EOS had, which was the EOS owner wallet. It was the one that was receiving the ETH from the smart contract. From there, it went to a subsidiary wallet for holding. And then anything that moved out of any of the wallets that drew funds from EOS, it was like a 90% chance that it always ended up at Bitfinex, right? So, uh, well, the we, same guys are all Bitfinex and EOS and are more or less some of the same cats. Yeah, some of the same people, right? Um, and obviously, Bitfinex was the largest exchange at the time. Yeah. So if you're going to move a ton of value around, I think those guys raised like $4.5 billion worth of Ethereum. 
you would have some kind of special relationship with an exchange regardless, yeah. right? Because you're moving so much money around. So, uh, but this was just a straight market liquidation, right? Um, yeah. in, in traditional markets, I think that that would be considered market manipulation because they're purposely trying to crash the price of an asset before they launch their own. But this is crypto. None of that stuff really applies, right? So, um, you know, we were able to see the transaction moving in real time. But, um, you know, at the point in time, everything was already in a downward spiral. So uh, we didn't want to trade against it. But it's just interesting to know if you can map these relationships out, then you're able to see where you think value is going to land based on its history of performance, right? So it's just really, really interesting. These things look like maps. I mean, if you've ever seen uh, some of the stuff that we published, um, you know, we're able to... It's like a, a, a picture of the universe. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it looks like. Yeah, you have all these constellations of wallets <laughs> that are investing in different things, and it's just incredible, right? Um, one of our favorite things to look at is mining clusters, for example. Oh, wow. uh, mining clusters always liquidate you know, at a certain time of the day, for example, because they have operation fees that they have to pay, <laughs> right? So you can kind of depict uh, a nice average pulse of mining operations, liquidating funds throughout the day. And then you can see what tokens they hold, which ones they get rid of, all the other ICOs that they participated in. It's fascinating, but you get a good idea of how big the community is as well. So, so let me ask you this. So we got a lot of questions here. Sure. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time in Chicago yes. uh, with big time traders and you're rubbing shoulders and elbows and knees and feet with all of these traders and traditional finance guys. How do they view the crypto space? Are they like, hey, this is totally the real deal. It's just really undervalued and we're waiting for a big markup and we're accumulating right now. Or are they just like, eh, penny stocks, it's going to pass. Like, What's the mindset that these guys have? For sure. So they are uh, just as weary as anybody else as to what's going to happen, right? Just as worried? Uh, uh, weary. So weary. They're, yeah, they're, uh, you know, obviously- They're hedge funds. They're hedging. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Um, but I would say that depending on which fund you talk to, uh, every single one of them has a different function that they're trying to exploit, Right. Um, some of them are still investing heavily in the, uh, the companies that are building the technology. Some of them are basically only doing OTC, right? Other ones are strictly doing buy hold for clients in Bitcoin, right? It's really interesting to see, but I mean, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars uh, in value that these guys work with. And everybody still has this long-term vision that crypto and uh, digital assets is more of the lingo that they use in Chicago, right? Um, crypto kind of carries this bad, uh, I would say like a juju with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when, when they talk about digital assets, the reason that they use that term more uh, is because I think it's going to be a slow saturation where these digital assets will come online through companies like Fidelity or through, uh, you know, the CFTC is looking at uh, a lot of this information. You've got CBOE and CME, which will probably come online with some kind of product that uh, allows, you know, larger investors to get exposure into the market, right? Um, but I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's going to be something where, uh, you know, all the banks are going to go bust and everybody has to buy into crypto and it's going to force the price of Bitcoin to shoot up to $15 million per coin, right? I don't think that's necessarily the case at all. Um, you know, what you're going to start to see is the replication of uh, traditional assets becoming available on digital assets. And you'll start to see the uh, trade exposure become more centralized, probably within the larger communities, the trade communities that really, uh, you know, have an impact um, in traditional markets, right? And what that means too is that uh, a lot of the 
a lot of the things that like out, let's just say the OG crypto people look for is they want privacy and they want, um, you know, they, they want the ability to hide what they have and who they trade with, right? They want uh, complete anonymity. And the people on the other end, the regulatory end, don't want that at all, yeah. right? Um, so it's interesting to see the way that this will play out because if you're a large fund and you're going to be moving tons of value around and you're going to be exchanging on these exchanges, you have to have KYC, you have to have AML. The government requires it, right? But to see, on the other hand, people who are trying to create these privacy products don't realize that the big players can't interact with those products. And if funds are coming from a mixer or if they're coming from uh, some unknown component, questions are going to be asked and flags are going to be raised, right? Yeah, I know an exchange that automatically detects Bitcoin that's come out of a mixer and they straight up reject the deposit. Yeah. Really? Yes. Is that CoinMetro? Yep. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's absolutely required because um, there's a lot of original, you know, um, at some point, everything is going to come from some kind of mixer or it's going to have some kind of interaction with some kind of funky product out there, right? That's not going to make sense if you believe in the way that these markets work because it's obviously a limited supply, right? But um, that's why, if, for example, my co-founder Jonas has a ton of, un you know, it's original untouched Bitcoin sitting on a bunch of different machines that he owned originally because um, he used to own a data center, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, those things, people will pay a premium for that stuff, right? 20%, 30%, 50% like, premium. It's the idea that, you know, it's cash that's never been touched before. Exactly. It's unmarked bills, for example, right? Like, um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's insane to think of it that way, but it's, not, you know, it's true. But uh, he was so early in Bitcoin that he has a bunch of original Bitcoin that was handed over, you know, when they forked off and created Litecoin and all the other UTXO chains that were forked off in Bitcoin. Um, it's the same thing. And as soon as you start to move around one wallet's worth of activity, you can identify who the person is behind all the other wallets that receive the same amount in a fork, right? So, um, you know, people are definitely willing to pay a premium for that stuff. But uh, as far as when it comes to the larger markets and the larger players in the game, um, these guys have to, you know, they have to abide by the rules. And it's interesting to see, like, JP Morgan created a privacy, it's Quorum, right? It was a privacy chain um, that they developed off. It was, a, I think, a base of Ethereum originally, right? But um, for the most part, these just look like projects to see what's available and what they can get away with, right? Because these same guys are also people who, like, for example, Wells Fargo funneled through, like, $438 billion from drug cartels right. uh, back in the day. And, you know... HSBC, it feels like every week we're talking about HSBC getting caught for money laundering. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the amount of you know cash that those guys are taking in and funneling through, uh, it rightly so deserves that there would be a giant bank anyway, right? But when everything is traceable, it becomes much harder. So it's it, one of the other things that's really interesting to see is how little regulators really pay attention to the fact that um, you can identify transactions very easily and you know, trace this stuff, right? Um, Chainalysis is probably the, the biggest company uh, in the market that does this type of stuff. They have what we call a data moat. They've been collecting information on wallets and dark markets since I think 2014, right? So they have this huge uh, you know, collection of wallets that have interacted with criminal organizations or have you know, early mixers that have moved funnels, you know, funneled uh, funds around. Uh, one of the ones that we did some early analysis on, it was kind of interesting to see other people pick this up, 
but was Quadriga CX, right? It was real easy to understand that Quadriga CX was moving their Ethereum to a couple very specified wallets and then dumping them out through a couple different mixers and then onto Bitcoin, which they sold on Poloniex and a couple other exchanges, right? Um, because that's not what traditional exchange activity looks like. Um, when you start to map these relationships out, um, you know, you see you get this huge spider web of interconnectivity that, again, makes these things look like social networks. They act and behave exactly like social networks do. So um, one of the things that we also like to look at and try to think about um, is there's something called Metcalfe's Law. If you're familiar with it, it basically describes the, the value of interconnected networks, right? Um, and it's one of the reasons why things typically pick up and like, for example, Facebook becomes more valuable every time a new user subscribes uh, okay. or creates an account, right? Uh, Metcalf's law is probably the, the best long-term predictor for how well these assets will do. Um, and it's, it's still hard to kind of gauge how many of these are unique individuals because anybody can create a wallet, right? But one of the things that we look at is not the number of wallets that receive tokens, but the number of wallets that send tokens, right? Because anybody can do an airdrop, right? Anybody can just drop tokens into a bag and send them out to millions of different wallets. But for them to actively be moved around by a million different wallets is different, right? So one of the growth metrics that we follow isn't just how many wallets are receiving tokens, it's how many wallets are actively transferring these tokens. And then another thing that's also a great measure of, uh, one of the things we recently moved into as a position was Edgeware, right? Edge Edgeware. Edgeware. Okay. Which is a, a Polkadot product, which is an offshoot of Ethereum, right? Um, so Edgeware, for example, we saw a bunch of original Genesis wallets on Ethereum, mm. uh, which had 80,000 ETH sitting there that had not moved Ethereum uh, since the Genesis chain was launched. Um, we saw them move 100% of their assets into the Edgeware smart, it's a lockup, wow. right? So uh, Edgeware at one point had, I think, close to 2% of all the ETH in its uh, lock contract. And I'm surprised it's something that I've never heard of. Yeah. Yeah. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You? No. So we're able to identify these opportunities by understanding who these communities of traders are. And the way that we find them is we start from a specific point in time. For example, 0x is one of the best ones, right? Uh, for me to give an example on. Uh, 0x launched their ICO, I want to say it was August 15th, 2017. And before they launched their ICO, they distributed coins to their investors, their team members, and their founders. And you can see all of these transactions before. It's all you do is you filter by transactions for 0x before August 15th, 2017. And uh, it takes me about two seconds to do on our platform. And all of a sudden, you get a list of addresses that, you know, obviously based on their distribution, they have a vesting wallet, which you can see and follow. They have obviously the founders are probably the next two in line. So you can see the founders' wallets, see other tokens that they've interacted with. And you see their investors too. And their investors, it's kind of interesting because you'll see a wallet that has participated in 50 other ICOs. 
And all of a sudden you realize that that's probably a venture capital wallet. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you start to plot these guys out and you start to understand what kind of activity they get into and uh, you just follow what they do. And it's been something that we've done successfully for the last two and a half years, almost three years now. That's phenomenal. So what do you see happening for next year in 2020? Where are we at in the market cycle and where do you see things trending? Yeah, so it's going to become a much more complicated market. It's not going to be these simple, uh, hey, I heard about a token. It's about to launch. We're about to quadruple our money in a week, right? Um, what you're going to see is real financial products become available. And this will be uh, options. This will be lending. Obviously, lending is a huge thing right now in the community. Um, I think that the lending community is actually in a bubble um, because I don't think that there's any any possible way that there could be this many lending companies making those types of returns. Uh, yeah, how can they afford to dish out 8% interest on every Bitcoin? And like, how could there be 20 of these guys doing the same thing exactly. with $200 million You know, each, right? we're having uh, Alex Mashinsky on the show actually tomorrow. Oh, that's so we'll, uh, we'll tell yeah. him that his market's a bubble. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's most likely in a, uh, an expansion bubble, right? So, uh, you know, it, it just seems like if one of those guys were to go bust, that it would probably affect everything. Well, it would be catastrophic. Point, right? And I know that a lot of traders are actually, uh, for um, one, of the, one of my favorite things to follow is Maker, right? Maker, I think, is a phenomenal company. Um, I think that their product is probably one of the most revolutionary the way that they've launched it. It's got a great community. We watched Maker grow uh, almost double in size every quarter. Um, CDPs are probably one of the best and most utilized financial instruments or probably the most utilized financial instrument that exists on chain as a decentralized product. And they're, you know, another thing is too, they didn't launch an ICO. They've basically raised all the money that they need from uh, standard investments, right? So these guys are legit. And um, following the maker community has proved to be a really good um, indicator of what these financial products will look like in the future, right? So uh, we do have options that exist on chain, like uh, Darabit is obviously an options trading platform. I think that they're starting to get a lot of real traction, um, but I think we'll see more of these guys come online as traditional markets begin to bring those types of products to, uh, you know, I want to say the digital asset community. And what that means is obviously a lot of these have to be launched on smart contract platforms, right? Um, the way that they do cross-chain collateralization or the way that they do uh, cross-chain trading is going to become very important. I think that 0x will find its uh, utility finally, like a real good utility for this type of trading. Um, but, uh, you know, these are going to be more sophisticated products, which means you're going to have a more sophisticated community. So, so more price control. Would you say? Yes. So less volatility. Um, I, I wouldn't say it would be, I would say it'll be longer durations without the crazy volatility that we're used to, but it'll be a decent upward trend, right? Um, Are, have we started that upward trend, do you think? No, I still think, actually, I would be very bearish until, uh, you know, maybe March of next year, just because of the time of the season that we're in. Um, it's still Bitcoin rallied up another, uh, what was it, 300% this year, yeah. 200 and some percent. Um, Ethereum kind of peaked out. It went from 170 or 150 all the way up to 377. It's kind of been bouncing way, its way back down. Um, and, you know, the, again, um, I think that what we're seeing is a secondary exposure to the markets. I think people are speculating that these large institutions are going to bring tons of money into the market, which are going to force the prices of assets up. I don't necessarily think that that's the truth. 
Um, I think that these guys are very sophisticated. They can get exposure a million different ways now um, without actually having to physically buy these assets. Right. But, um, you know, I think when it comes down to the physicality of it, it's still a good long-term buy, obviously. I think that Bitcoin is like digital gold, right? Ethereum is more for speculation, um, and it's great for speculative products. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's going to force the prices up to, you know, I don't think the flipping is going to happen anytime soon. The flipping being Ethereum's market cap overtaking Bitcoin's market cap. Yeah, or the price even, right? Okay. A lot of people think that the price of Ethereum will shoot above Bitcoin too. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, which I think is like... <laughs> and 589 XRP. <laughs> yeah, okay. There you go. Um, and I think that a lot of the shitcoin is going to fall off the face of the earth, right? Because even though, um, you know, they're traded right now, um, the market caps for these things are so small that it's just not it, any single player that gets into these things that's a large institution is going to have some regulatory blowback because the, the amounts that they need to move around are you know going to force prices in specific directions. And you don't necessarily want that if you're trying to get into um, a regulated financial, uh, I'd say, domain, right? Yeah. Is there anything that these projects have in common that you see a lot of these huge traders or venture capitalists going for? Is it uh, decentralized finance? Is it uh, ecosystems? Is it infrastructure? Is there any kind of common trend that you're seeing? Yeah. So I think if you go on DeFi Pulse, you can follow the liquidity and decentralized finance. And it's been on a pretty good up and to the right, um, you know, growth uh, pattern for the last year. Right. And um, we, you know, following Maker, for example, has been... Uh, a really great metric for how well DeFi has been doing because we've noticed that the number of wallets that carry maker tokens or the number of wallets that move die around, for example, stable coins, um, has been growing by double every quarter. And then when Coinbase launched their $15 initiative to open up a CDP, uh, we saw, I think it was like 35,000 CDPs get created in like a week, which was phenomenal. But most of them were only $15 CDPs that people just ended up doing nothing with, right? They took their 15 bucks and then watched the CDP get liquidated. Or I don't even think Maker liquidated most of them because it just wasn't worth it, right? <laughs> so uh, it was a good way to expose the general retail public to how to use these things and how to create these things. The problem is, is that not a lot of people know how to use leverage, right? They don't know how to trade on leverage, right? A CDP is like a credit card for your Ethereum right now. Now that they opened up multi-collateral DAI, um, they're no longer called CDPs. I forget what they call them now. It's like a um, tub or... I know they changed die to Psy. Yeah, to Psy, right. But yeah, I'm not sure what the new one is. So, um, you know, it's interesting to see. I think they just obviously launched Psy just the other day. Um, so it's going to be great for us to follow how much interconnectivity there is between these different uh, assets and see what people do with them. But again, you're talking about a more sophisticated trader, Right. Uh, not your average retail trader is going to use leverage to go out and trade with. They're just going to basically sit on their smartphone on Binance and click buy, sell, buy, sell every time they see the market move in a specific direction, right? And unfortunately, um, that is a majority of, you know, what these exchanges want, for example, and exchanges being the largest entities and probably the most profitable entities in all of the digital asset space, um, they still kind of dictate what happens and, you know, where this market is moving. Until you get like the fidelities of the world or, um, you know, the, the large, like a Goldman Sachs, who uh, is obviously opening up a crypto uh, trading desk or they're getting into the digital asset space, um, 
Goldman, or not Goldman, but uh, Fidelity has done a lot of investments in different companies in the crypto space. Um, you'll start to see these products and these derivative products um, really start to take over because, again, you don't need to have uh, exposure to the underlying asset as much as you can just trade on options or uh, you know, make bets on specific activity, right? right? So you can still trade on these things, it's, um, but you don't necessarily need to have the uh, exposure um, in a sense of owning the physical asset. So um, I think that you'll start to see these things as on-ramps for a lot of this stuff. But, uh, you know, at that point, you're looking at something that's going to affect more of the market cap and more of the volume than it probably will on the price. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform every year. And they're some of our good friends and they're a great sponsor. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets and your fees are extremely transparent. So if you're not ready to trade yet, uh, you could also practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. They give you $100,000 of virtual money and you could start playing around with it and not have to risk any of your real money before you get comfortable with the markets. And best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world, kind of like a social network for trading, to discuss charts and all things crypto. So go ahead, create an account today at eToro.com slash crypto 101. That helps us, that helps you, that helps them, and makes everything possible here if you guys use that link. So guys, start building your portfolio the smart way eToro is crypto trading made easy. All right, back to the show. Most of our listeners have probably never heard of options, let alone traded them. Could you explain a few of what the common options are and what they do? Okay, so I am not a great options trader. Uh, I am probably not the best person to ask. We have a trader in-house. His name is Greg Magadini, who actually built all of our options products. And he would butch, like, he would tear me a new one if I tried to explain this stuff. <laughs> okay, but fair enough. He always explains it to me as it's insurance. You can get insurance um, in the future based on bets that you make today, right? So... Um, yeah, we do. Uh, we look at, I mean, we basically have a, a huge options data set that uh, we just started diving into because um, I'll give you a good example of why we do this, right? Um, if we start to notice that one of the indexes that we follow does better in a down market than it does in an up market, and we start to see it outperform the, the indexes that we follow for a general uptrend, then we'll start to take, we'll start to use options to place bets or to make insurances on which way we think the market will swing in the future, right? If we think that, you know, it's, it's a longer downward trend, then we'll be able to take a position at a specific price point that will give us some exposure or some kind of protection at a certain level. Um, but I haven't even really gotten into that stuff too much. Again, I didn't come from the finance industry. I came from the the social network influence industry. So um, I'm still trying to figure this stuff out myself, but I do have some really, really great conversations with some of the biggest trading desks in the world, right? Um, well, that's cool. I don't feel so bad for not knowing that. <laughs> they're confusing little sons they of are. bitches. Yeah, they're, they're definitely confusing. I mean, um, but I will tell you that uh, one of the fun things that we do, uh, and this is more of just for us to get insight into what's happening is, um, like Deribit, for example, you can follow all of the traders that are making deposits and withdrawals on Deribit. And uh, we could see uh, what the prices of Ethereum, for example, when they move their funds into a Deribit exchange and at what price Ethereum is when they move funds out. 
So we can kind of gauge how long they've been exposed and try to assume what kind of bets they've been making and identify which ones we think are the most profitable. Obviously, there's a couple that we follow that have taken out a lot more than they've put in. Interesting. Um, so it, it, it's, they don't necessarily go to the same wallet either. What we do is we use what's called a surface, right? So a surface is you typically have like a cold storage wallet that you maintain, right? And you'll notice this with a lot of funds. They'll have a wallet that uh, they'll have like $100 million worth of uh, Ethereum sitting in there, right? And then what they'll have are all these other wallets that come out of it, like little feeder wallets that are their custodial wallets on other exchanges, right? So they'll have one on Binance, they'll have one on Bitfinex, they'll have another one on like Gemini, right? And what we'll see is whenever they are about to move funds into an exchange, it goes into the custodial wallet of the exchange, then into the primary hot wallet or the, you know, the storage wallet for the exchange, the treasury wallet, right? And then what we'll see is the deposit or the withdrawals never come back out to the custodial wallets. The withdrawals actually go almost always back to cold back storage. To, yeah, back to cold storage, right? Huh. So that will be your withdrawal wallet. And that's why we get these really interesting surfaces where we can connect a single trader to all the exchanges that they work with. And we can see, especially in the case of arbitrage, um, when they're moving funds in and out of specific exchanges to take advantage of price points. And what we can see is what wallets or uh, what tokens there are being. That's amazing. And yeah. when, when could I get my hands on this? And when could the, the good citizens here at Crypt Nation get their hands on this? Uh, definitely. So the index and the, the options products, so the, the options data and the indexes will be launching before uh, the end of the year. The end of this year, 2019. Yeah, the, end, the end of this year, absolutely. And we're coming in at a very, very low ball beta price of $20 a month for people to be able to subscribe to these right now because we think that, again, um, we know that if people have a clear signal and a clear definition of what's happening with the market, it'll probably continue to move the market in that direction, right? Mm -hmm. So this is one of those things where... Uh, you know, we want as many people as possible to get exposure to these types of indexes because uh, they are, again, self-fulfilling prophecies. If you could follow, I, I used to say... Uh, the trend is your friend, guys. We say it all the time. Exactly. And what you'll be looking <laughs> George at... George Soros said it apparently, too. <laughs> yeah. He was the one that coined this stuff, right? <laughs> so uh, the more people who get exposure to these types of signals, we think it'll create more volatility, right? And that's good. That's what we want to see. We want to see people trading... Um, on the, you know, the types of signals that are generated. So again, we think that these are, again, going to work the same way a social network does. They're going to hopefully, um, you know, drive uh, these tokens based on whatever trend that these uh, specific indexes are following will continue to drive them in that direction. So as a signal provider, I'm not actually giving you my money and you're holding on to it and then I take it out. I'm not buying shares of a fund. You're simply controlling a bot that I would have, a third-party bot, Correct. And then so, I'm still custodying my own funds or how does it work? So, yeah, we don't want to manage anybody's money and we're not going to give people financial advice. What we're going to do is basically show you using on-chain analysis what the top performers are doing, right? So I can't so tell I'm you subscribing to some data feeds. Exactly. And you'll be able to actually... Uh, filter through the different feeds. And then it's up to me to go to Binance or whatever and say, okay, here's the signal I got from first.com. They're saying that, you know, it's looking like it's going down. So I'm going to go sell some of this. Exactly. Okay. So depending on what you see in the signal, there's different ways that you can trade on this stuff. And what we found is that every fund, every large fund, for example, has different protections that they'll put in place based on how 
how much risk they want to take on, right? So a lot of times it's never just a one-to-one. Like if I say I want to trade a million dollars and I have a signal that tells me when to buy and sell, they're not just going to you know sell a million dollars and buy a million dollars all at the same time, right? They scale in, they scale out, they have protections or maybe inverse signals that they look at for specific types of trades. But what we do um, is very specific, right? We can tell which direction the top traders believe that the market is going to head. And we can show you that, right? And we don't want to follow any one specific player because that can be game. So what we'll do is we'll combine a thousand of these top players together and it'll give you a nice balance of signal, right? And uh, what we found that, you know, over time, these signals perform very, very well compared to the normal market. And it's not a buy hold strategy, right? It doesn't make sense if you're trying to trade and you're trying to make profits in crypto, you have to take money, you have to take profits, off the table, right? Something that everybody here trading crypto, I think, has learned the hard way the last two years. Exactly, right? So when you're up, try to take a little bit of that money off the table, right? And that's what these are designed to help you make those types of distinctions, right? So if you know, for example, the top 100 DYDX traders are all liquidating their Ethereum, then, you know, they obviously think something's about to happen to the Mm -hmm. price of Ethereum. Now, one of the interesting things that I don't get too much into is why are these guys so good at what they do? And it's typically because they probably work at an exchange or they probably own Mm. an exchange. Uh, What we've noticed, especially with decentralized finance, because there's no KYC or AML, um, that some of these guys and some of these traders are so spot on with their timing. um, That That it's suspect. (laughs) That it's very suspect, yeah. Uh, And so what this really kind of does is it creates a market where it is, uh, in a sense, of what a natural market would look like, right? People... Even to this day in traditional markets are trading on uh, information that nobody else has access to. In fact, politicians are allowed to do it legally here in the United States, right? Um, so, you know, it, it does become very suspect that uh, these guys would be so performant. But at the same time, you can see everything that they're doing, right? So it's not necessarily that you're participating in insider trading, for example. But what it is, is you're allowed to see what insiders are doing and you're allowed to speculate on what they think that type of behavior is, right? So we don't get into the actual identification of wallets. We don't. Think, we think it creates a bias. Um, one of the things I found out early on was uh, when we started, I, so one of the early things that uh, Jonathan and I did was we purchased a whole copy of Crunchbase's data set from Crunchbase, it's like 10 grand, right? And uh, we looked at every single person that participated in ICOs, and then we found all the wallets that matched the ICOs that people participate on Crunchbase. So we would look at wallets like if this guy participated in six ICOs, let's find a wallet that has all those tokens in it that participated oh. early on. And we started identifying who we thought. These- and you could guess and you could say like, well, there's only two people that invested in all six of these and there's only two wallets that have those tokens. Exactly. So it's one of these guys. Yeah, or wallets that got in early enough to be part of a venture deal that are moving funds around, right? You need some and serious so, forensics. Yeah, and it, it to be honest, it actually created a, a bias because when we started looking into these guys, a lot of them were just goofballs. Yeah. It's like, and you listen to them talk and you're like, oh, this is hard to like listen <laughs> to, right? Um, so uh, we started kind of negating what was... Uh, you know, obviously still a clear signal of when to buy and sell. And that's where we came up with this idea of like, you know, rather than try to identify who these people are and out them for the types of activity that they do, because obviously a lot of these guys moved to Puerto Rico to evade taxes or whatever. Yeah. Right? So um, rather than try to get into that business, what we wanted to do was we wanted to understand um, how these guys were able to make these decisions 
And who are they sharing these decisions with, right? Again, people always share their wins. They never share their losses. And if they're looking to past performance to try to detect what future performance will look like, then what they do is they talk. They talk a lot. And so it's interesting to see sometimes um, you'll see a wallet get into a position. And then a week later, you'll see three other wallets move into that same position that have that same behavior of just following what these people are doing. eToro just released their version of social trading, right? Mm -hmm. I think Copy I, trader. I there, are there are sponsors. Yeah, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, we notice is that obviously people can subscribe to other traders, but what we're able to do is, I would say, far greater than that. We're looking at millions and millions of wallets that have all behaved in specific types of activity, and we're identifying who the very best ones are. And from there, we're able to distinguish what kind of activity is happening, what general direction they think the market's going to move in. And believe it or not, it creates the strongest types of signals that I think exist in crypto. And when you start to share that with people, Metcalf's law becomes something that takes effect, right? Uh, the network begins to grow and you start to create these self-fulfilling prophecies where uh, whatever. It, one of the things I learned early on in influence, and this sounds terrible, but it's absolutely true. And it's one of the reasons why I got out of the business was... Uh, I think it was, um, I forget who, who told this to me, but it was probably the most impactful thing I heard. It doesn't matter if you're wrong. It doesn't matter if you're right. It, it only matters how many people believe you, mm. right? And that's what these markets are, right? Um, again, when you see $200,000 worth of SNX token move into Andreessen Horowitz's wallet, it doesn't even mean that they had to buy them. If, they, if you just deposited those in their wallet and someone shared that on social media, what's going to happen? That's right? true. So that's what we realized. And so these are small markets. It only takes a couple of these actors to really move the markets in a general direction. It creates a lot of speculation. And all of a sudden, people have a field day. And really what happens is um, it, the thing that's most important in this whole entire thing is how quick do you receive and act on the information that you receive, mm -hmm. right? So that's where it becomes an information's armed race, right? We realized this really, really early on. That's why we didn't get into the post-block personification game. We got into the pre-block personification game. And with decentralized networks, uh, what you're talking about is traditional in traditional markets, you'll have an exchange in Chicago, you'll have another exchange in Canada, and another one in Tokyo, right? And depending on the high-speed network that you have access to, um, when you route your orders, for a long time, there was exchanges that were front-running their own clients and selling the order books to other high-frequency trading desks, right? And so um, if you've ever read the uh, – uh, there was a movie that came out, I think, uh, called The Hummingbird Project. And there was another book that was published called Flash Boys, which is a great book. Um, and what happened was a lot of the traders that were in the high-frequency trading game – were basically getting front run by the exchanges that they were working with. So I think it was, uh, I think the guy's name is Brad Katsuyama or something like that. The guy who uh, figured this all out. He worked at the uh, RBC, which I think was a, a large bank in Canada. He created an exchange called IEX, right? And IEX purposely slowed down transactions so that all of their orders could be filled legitimately by real players. And it, it made them a very, very profitable and a very, very good exchange to work with. They had this great reputation, right? So what we realized in high frequency trading on chain is that it just doesn't exist, right? You can't, if, if Bitcoin takes 10 minutes to resolve a block and Ethereum takes 30 seconds and something like EOS takes a couple seconds, like you're talking about lifetimes of trading activity that could happen in a high frequency trading game, right? right. So um, what you have to do is you have to saturate the network 
with listening nodes, right? Nodes that are listening to all the broadcast transactions because the way that these uh, blockchains work or these decentralized networks is uh, a node picks up a transaction and then it broadcasts it out to other nodes that have a high reputation within its network, right? And then what they'll do is they'll begin to mine these transactions and the first one that comes to a, a, a block hash that's complete, they'll notify the rest of the network that they've solved that uh, block, right? And then if the block is solved by enough miners and it comes to consensus, once it's in consensus, it's added to the chain and then it is basically immutable, right? Um, so if you wanna participate in the high-speed information game of blockchain, you have to own as many of these nodes as possible and distribute them throughout the world and have them listening to the network. Once you can identify the transactions, where they're coming from, you can actually start to begin to, uh, you know, geolocate where these transactions originate from. Uh, because you can see the ping speed, like, oh, this thing ping way quicker. Yeah, this one's getting ping in Tokyo. It's really close to Tokyo. Every time this wallet transact, we notice it on this network first, mm -hmm. right? So um, wow. what begins to happen is we can start to identify and geolocate where we think certain activity comes from, right? Uh, you can also begin to... Uh, really dig in and understand, I mean, again, we try not to identify who these wallets are, but we notice a lot of activity coming from Singapore, coming from Hong Kong, coming from uh, Chicago, wherever. And, um, you know, it, it, a lot of it kind of also dictates where the mining facilities are, these are originating from, right? Um, Infura, for example, uh, on Ethereum, they actually, most of the Web3 stuff that's on Ethereum gets submitted through Infura because they have the best API network for Ethereum transactions, right? Um, they'll actually internally mine transactions before they broadcast them out to the network, right? Um, and they'll typically hit two or three nodes before they broadcast it out to kind of give us protection behind and try to create some anonymity behind where these transactions originate from. But if you're a DRW or you're a Citadel, for example, um, you can afford to displace these, these nodes all over the world yeah. and listen to these transactions before they hit general consensus, right? So that's where the real information's arm race, I believe, is going to happen. And um, once you have that kind of saturation in the network, you'll really be able to take advantage of uh, you know, the speed game in crypto. What about OTC? How does that factor into all this stuff? OTC is a good, um, I love talking about OTC. So uh, one of the things that we learned really, really early on too, working with large funds is that they don't want us to see what they're looking at, right? So we had to create proprietary solutions where we actually give our data to them and show them how to use the data to you know, basically do some data analysis on their own. We'll actually put it on premise for a lot of these guys. And um, what we figured out was they're all doing the same thing. They are all watching where the money goes and following where it gets broken up to and where it's getting sold and other people that they're selling with. Um, from what we've heard, there's quite a daisy chain that happens during OTC trades. A daisy chain? Yeah, a daisy chain. So if I'm never big, heard of it. So if I'm a big <laughs> she sounds fund, cute though. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm a big fund and you're a big fund and he's a big fund, um, you know, he probably calls you, you call me because you know that I have, let's say, a thousand Bitcoin, right? And so uh, what happens is I'll send you Bitcoin, right? And I'll watch you send it to him, right? And so uh, what they're doing is they're following and speculating on who they think that these funds are going to, right? And um, what they're also trying to do is they're trying to detect, uh, typically, especially with Bitcoin, 
um, almost every transaction is a new wallet, right? So you really have to link together the history of transactions in order to understand um, where they're originating from. And a lot of times, um, it's not very clear who they're originating value from. You have to use a Cardison product to kind of piece together these values, right? Um, but it's, it's really interesting to see they're all trying to do the same thing to each other. They're trying to figure out how much you're actually holding, right? Um, and because they want to know how long you are, how bullish or bearish you are on the market, right? Every, every single one of these guys is trying to do the same exact thing. Trying to size everybody up here. Exactly. And that's typically a good indicator for uh, what they're expecting to happen, right? Um, they all think that they're going to initially nail one of these large like clients like the Goldman Sachs of the world, or the JP Morgans or whatever, and they're going to be able to service these guys over and over again. So they're trying to follow um, where the value ends up. Um, a lot of guys do actually uh, behave kind of – one of the things I would probably never do is keep my money on a centralized exchange uh, just for fear of what could typically happen. I mean – Standard practice. Yeah, standard yeah. practice, but a lot of these guys do, believe it or not. Yeah. So you'll see what exchanges they're working with, right? And then you can use surfaces to try to identify other things that they're holding. But um, yeah, in OTC, um, it doesn't really affect the value, right? Uh, these are happening behind closed doors, um, typically over a phone call. It's not hitting the general market. They're not doing any price discovery, right? Um, but it's a good way for people to move large amounts around and make a you know a small percentage on a large set of volume, right? And so would you say that, you know, for whatever, you, uh, a big guy like Dharma Capital or whatever, maybe one of these funds, they want to liquidate $100,000 or a million dollars worth of Ethereum, they're generally not doing that on an exchange. Is that correct? No, actually, so if you're talking like a million bucks, $100,000 is nothing, right? Easy peasy. Yeah, I mean, I used to trade that personally, like... Uh, when the market was really hot, right? Like you'll have individual actors do a hundred grand and, you know, maybe even a million dollars worth of volume in a day, mm -hmm. right? Just as a person. Um, that's not that uncommon. Um, when you, one of the things that will... But you can't let a billion dollars of Bitcoin hit no, an exchange. No, not at all. In fact, I think everybody flipped out when they saw there was a billion dollar Bitcoin wallet transfer that happened a couple months ago. Yeah. And everybody lost their shit, right? Um, but what's really funny, and one of my favorite examples to really kind of, again, talk about speculation is Binance, 87% of all the BNB tokens sit in a single wallet. Right. Whoa. And Binance moved it all there right before they launched the BNN chain. And if you look at the, the price of BNB, for example, uh, over the last year, you'll notice that it's had a very uh, step like function to its price increase where it steps up incrementally, not as a, uh, it, you know, it's not a plain kind of pattern or a parabolic pattern that you would normally see. It literally just steps up in price for like a four month period. And um, I assume what was happening was Binance was systematically buying their tokens back right before they launched the BNN chain, right? Or before they were about to launch their decentralized chain, right? Or their uh, trading platform. And so what we saw was 87% of all the Binance tokens, the BNB tokens, get transferred to a single wallet. And I, I saw uh, CZ actually posted this online. Uh, they transferred $2.8 billion worth of BNB for $15, it cost <laughs> right, into a single wallet. And so, um, you know, it, and what's crazy is it didn't really drive a, a speculative pattern like it did with BTC 
um, when you saw that billion dollar transfer because again, you know, people flip out when it's, you know, billion dollars of Bitcoin moving around, but then they don't realize that this much smaller uh, volume of stuff is being held by a single exchange, which created the token. So in a sense, it's a very centralized uh, token, right? But it's interesting to see, I mean, if you just look at the price of BNB um, from when it was, I think, a man, it went from like $3.50 all the way up to like $5.50 all the way up to $35 um, this year. Um, Just look at the pattern and it's a step function, which probably means that they were buying back all their tokens, right? Well, they had that uh, quarterly burn that they do. So I wonder if that's part of it or if there's something even beyond that as well. So uh, one of the things we realized about that too was uh, they had a burn wallet and we saw them move some of the burn tokens into that same wallet. Oh, Jesus. Well, it's not, I mean, assuming that they're not going to use them, if they control the tokens, it doesn't matter if they burn them or not, right? But it was funny because they released their burn statements every quarter, how much they actually burn. And we saw that same exact amount end up in that same wallet. So Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. But again, um, you know, that's a centralized asset, right? Yeah. Um, they can literally do whatever they want with it, right? There's really nothing that's preventing them. But uh, it is very, very interesting to follow. If you just look for the highest holding BNB wallet, you'll find the wallet that I'm talking about. And it's interesting to see too because it, it's not an actively traded wallet, right? They don't use it as a treasury wallet. They're literally just holding on to tokens there. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I mean, it also shows you how much liquidity is really necessary to run that token. So there's a lot of cool things that you can learn um, just by looking at on-chain data, right? But it does take a huge amount of resources to do this stuff. I think... Yeah. When we're running our own nodes, um, the last I heard, Jonas told me we were processing around 40,000 transactions a second, um, trying to get pre-chain or sorry, pre-block information because of how many bogus transmissions there are on the network, right? Um, And that's almost pushing the same type of scale that American Express has. I think American Express is pushing 55,000 transactions a second. And the server cost must be insane. Yeah, it gets crazy. Uh, (laughs) You have to get really creative with uh, storage and indexing. And uh, we have to create a lot of tools ourselves personally to run a data science platform on top of this. But yeah, it is extremely expensive. That is definitely our largest bill. (laughs) Well, this episode has absolutely melted my brain and probably the ears of many of our listeners. Absolutely. Uh, The time has flown by. I literally can't think of a second that we could edit out of this because this has been so informative and interesting. I've got one final question. We do have one. Well... This isn't a question that we typically ask. I got oh. time, but go for it. Um, top pick for 2020. Top pick for 2020. What is it going to be? Oh, man. Okay. So, <laughs> and okay. why? Can't, can't give advice, but I would say start sticking your guns to decentralized finance products. I'm a big fan of Maker. Uh, I love what Maker's doing. I love what Synthetics is doing, although I think Synthetics has a long way to go before it's a utilizable product. Uh, for it to, I mean, I think they hit recently a hundred million dollar market cap. Yeah, they've been kudos to those guys. Yep, they've been creeping up there on yeah, the coin market cap. Up, but uh, just keep your eye out for these uh, new types of financial instruments. Anything that comes on to solve on-chain options or on-chain uh, insurances for products, I think are going to be huge. Um, I'm a little bit bearish on lending right now. I think that the bear, you know, the uh, um, lending market is a little oversaturated. I'm not sure how these guys are continually making profits in a down market and continually you know, taking money in. And also uh, what I've noticed is that these guys have traders that are taking advantage of uh, one lending rate 
by you know moving funds to another lending rate and just recursively borrowing against each other. So, um, but yeah, I, I'd say my favorite my favorite one out there is still Maker. Very um, I nice. love what Maker's doing. I think that they're actually creating products that have real utility. They didn't launch an ICO, and these guys are working really really hard to bolster the community and to actually build products that are usable products by real financial professionals. Amazing. Patrick, thank you so much for your time, man. And thank you for, this was awesome. Appreciate it, guys. All All right, let's go have some uh, hot wings. Let's have some wings. (laughs) Thank you, Patrick. All right, take care. Crip Nation, just a friendly neighborhood reminder to go to www.crypto2020summit.com and register for your free conference pass to the online summit, Crypto 2020 Summit. We got 60 speakers who are giving their bold predictions for prices and bold predictions for uh, technological developments in this crazy crypto space. So if you want to be the first to know the big news and you want to make sure that you're in touch and in tune, go to Crypto2020Summit.com right now and register for free. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.